Beloved, we turn again to God's word where we left off a few months ago, Matthew chapter 6. You'll see on page 5 an outline of the sermon, if you'd like to follow along, just giving you kind of a skeletal picture of where the Lord willing will be going here. We pick up in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, reading verses 1 through 8, and then verses 16 through 18. Hear now the word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites in the synagogues do and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Loved ones, it's something we all struggle with. It manifests itself differently among different personalities and ages and at different points in our life. It is an issue of every human heart. It is the fear of man. The temptation to use people, to worry about what people think about us, rather than loving people. As one writer says, do you know who didn't worry at all about what people thought of him? Jesus. And do you know who loved people perfectly? Jesus. In our world, visible performance is so highly valued. But as Christians, we are set free from that enslavement. And we are freed because of who we are in Christ and because of who our Heavenly Father is. Free to love people. Free to forget about ourselves. Free to not be absorbed in what my own mind is thinking. 
and free to live in the presence of God before God, enjoying God. This passage deeply kind of uncovers a lot of things in all of our hearts, especially the heart of a pastor. I want to tell you, coming back after sabbatical in this passage, wow. But this is what the Lord has for us as we continue in this series by his spirit. So it's like you're opening up the engine of the car, the hood, and you're looking inside and seeing what living before the presence of God looks like from performing to trusting. First, let's look at what we see here in terms of the danger of performance. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 is right in the middle. Jesus is talking to us about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Christ brings with his coming, the kingdom that tells us that we, by faith in Christ, are reconciled to our Father, and a kingdom that says, here's how Jesus equips his people to live. He gives a warning. Do you see that in verse 1 of chapter 6? Beware. Kids, maybe you're driving on the road and you're in the mountains and you see a big sign, beware of a cliff or potential falling rocks. This is a bewaring of something that is very deceptive. Beware of the sin in our own hearts or being deceived by others where we pretend to be religious. Where it's all about how we look. Beware, he tells us in verse 2, of hypocrisy. Kevin DeYoung reminds us of something good here. Too often Christians think of hypocrites as people who do one thing but feel another. But that's not hypocrisy, he says. Hypocrites publicize one set of beliefs but live by a different set of beliefs. When you come to church but don't feel like it, he says, that's not hypocrisy. That's faithfulness. When you do the right thing in your marriage, even when you don't feel in love, that's fidelity. DeYoung says, I've heard too many times people saying, Pastor, I would be a hypocrite to stay in this marriage because I'm not in love anymore. Or I would be a hypocrite to come to worship when I don't feel like worshiping. Or I would be a hypocrite to pray because I don't feel like praying. Doing what is right when we don't feel like it is gospel-given maturity. Professing one thing in public but living a different way in private, that's hypocrisy. And I'm really glad he said that because I think it clears up some things for us. Hypocrisy is literally wearing a mask. The word comes from an ancient Greek word where people would be actors in plays. And at one point, kids, they'd be the bad guy, so they put on the joker mask. Then, later in the play, they're the good guy, so they put on the Batman mask. And it's all pretend based on the role that they're playing. No sincerity. It's a theatrical show. It's fake. Maybe you talk to someone or you hear a story and you think, that sounds fake. Or this is too good to even be true. Come on. 
Remember 1998? Long time ago. Any sports fans? The summer of the baseball chase of the record of Roger Maris. And two guys were going at it, one a Cardinal, one a Cub. And in the moment, everyone loved it. And they thought, this sounds too good to be true, but it seems to be true. And, well, later on, you find out this is the steroid era in baseball. Something else may have been going on there. Beware of hypocrisy is Jesus' point. A hypocrite thinks, if I do this, God will respond like this. So a hypocrite not only tries to use others, but a hypocrite tries to use God. And this is the heart of every false religion in the world, as one pastor says. Quid pro quo. This for that. And Jesus begins to unpack what this looks like through good spiritual disciplines that, if we don't have a heart of faith, can be twisted. That's what he's doing here. He's talking about giving, fasting, and praying. The foundational thing with all of these disciplines is your relationship and my relationship with God. But what he's unpacking here are our motives. Not just what we do, but why do we do what we do? It's possible for us to be self-deceived. He talks about giving. In the context, Matthew 6, 2, this is speaking of the synagogue in Jesus' day. There would have been taxes on the people, and part of the taxes would be given to the poor. And this is what has gone on since the days of the Old Testament. And in addition to that, people would give freely and voluntarily. And giving is a good, God-glorifying thing. But imagine this scene. Do you see what Jesus says? It's very vivid. A man is walking down to the synagogue. He's got his money bags carried on each side. There's trumpets blaring, announcing Mr. So-and-so is here. Look at what he's giving. Now, Jesus is exaggerating here. This didn't literally happen. This is hypocrisy beyond what even hypocrisy would really be, right? This is over-the-top stuff. His point is this. What's our motive in giving? And this is not just money, but our time, our talents, Our spiritual peer pressure and the fear of man can be intense. Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't worried about what the unbeliever thought. They were thinking about what other believers would think. And they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. A hypocrite gives not to help the poor, but to be seen as helping the poor. He uses the poor to help himself. This is subtle. What is our motivation in giving? Our desire for reputation. It's an issue of the heart. What about fasting? Jesus goes on, verse 16, he says, fasting, which has been part of the practice of God's people from the days of the Old Testament, is to be something where we are mournfully repentant 
And in the Old Testament, they would wear certain things and have ashes and things, and you would see that as a sign of mourning. But now the Pharisees had taken something good, and they had, again, made it all about themselves. So they were concerned, as Jesus says here, about how they look. So they really wanted people to know their fasting. And the way they would dress and the way they would hold their face and the way they would be so serious all the time. Their fast was not for God, but to be noticed. Jesus then talks about praying. See how he's uncovering the heart? How does the hypocrite pray? Well, in Jesus' day, during the synagogue, they would gather probably three times a day for prayer. And the hypocrite loved to pray on the street corner, loved to be out there, to be seen. What is the motive? It tells us in the text, he wants to appear a certain way before others. He wants to impress people. He wants people to see what he's doing. Do you remember the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector? The Pharisee prays out loud. It's a show. And he talks about all really he has done. Again, a warning, especially for pastors, anyone who prays out loud at any time. Jesus does not condemn public prayers. He prayed publicly. Praying as a church body on Sunday, praying in prayer meetings, praying out loud in a Bible study or at home, those are God-glorifying things. The issue is the motive. Jesus then twists things a bit in verse 7. Not in a bad way, but he turns it. Look at what he says. A hypocrite not only wants to kind of care about what other people think, a hypocrite also wants to try to impress God. Do you see what Jesus uses? A word called Gentiles. Not speaking of the nations. Jesus came to save the nations. But speaking here in this context of those who would pray to God without truly knowing God. And those, he says, who would babble, verse 7, literally. They would go on and on and on. They would think, if I say more words, that will get God to actually hear me. There's examples in the Bible of this. We think most clearly of things like 1 Kings 18, the false prophets of Baal who are cutting themselves and hoping to arouse Baal and trying to twist his arm and, Hello, Baal! Do you hear me? Remember that passage? The problem is beyond that, though, isn't it? It's mindless repetition. It can be seen in a practice of repeating certain phrases over and over, thinking that if I say it enough, it'll have an impact. It can be seen in performing in prayer. And loved ones among us, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, when we have liturgical forms that the church has used and has loved because it's summarizing the Bible, do we check out? When the pastor prays those things, 
does he sound like he's reading a phone book, like he's somewhere else, and like he's just kind of muttering the words? There can be a danger there. On the other hand, if we're trying to be so casual, we can kind of mutter things that don't even make sense. Again, it's an issue of the heart. God's not impressed with a lot of words. One person brings up how we talk about those who lived in other ages, and we talk about how they prayed for two or three hours a day. We don't want to assume their motives. We can't judge another person's motives. We don't even know our own motives sometimes. But we ought not think, well, that person prayed three hours a day, so God must have heard him more than me when I pray 10 minutes a day. That's not true, is it? God hears you as you come to him in faith, as we struggle, as we are, are weary. It's not about how much we do. It's a heart check. The direction of my heart, is it Godward or is it manward? David Paulison talks about this a lot. The vertical dimension, remembering God's presence, knowing that we can fool others, we can even fool ourselves, but we can't fool God. And over time, we can't really fool those living with us either, can we? Why do we do what we do? Why do we come to church? Why do we worship the Lord? Why do we go to a prayer meeting? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Every decision we make, we must not do so for smug self-satisfaction. And the danger of faking it is so real because we're fallen. We live in a fallen world. And we want people to think we're wiser and more independent and self-sufficient than we really are. So we can fake it with our job. We can fake it in terms of our marriage and act like everything's great. Parenting, we got it. We got the most recent formula, it'll work. Schooling, we figured it out. We're good. We are on the ball. Friendships, one friend struggles and we act like we're fine when we're actually struggling with the same thing, maybe even deeper down. Fear of man. One person says, if I do a little more, if I work harder, maybe the boss will notice. Maybe my coworker will praise me. The problem with that is one eye is always watching around me and not thinking about God before whose presence I'm living. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily, What does Paul say? As for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Deep-rooted fear of man and hypocrisy is seen when we inwardly drink in the praise of people, even if we kind of pretend we're not. We just soak it in. And inwardly, we seethe when we're criticized. And we hold on to it. And we forget what God thinks is what matters. Jesus speaks of rewards here. 
When a person lives this way, apart from faith in Christ, what reward do they get? If we perform for the praise of people, in some way we will get it. In conversations, we always can find ways to turn it back on ourselves and what we're doing. The idea of image. If we use religion to get power and attention and praise, there is no reward from God in heaven. And the praise of man is all that they will ever get. That's what Jesus says. Their hearts haven't been changed. They will not hear the voice, well done, good and faithful servant coming from the Lord. And at this point, you're saying that is the most depressing post-sabbatical sermon I've ever heard. From performance to trust, secondly. What's the answer here? Because we all know we fake it in different ways. We all know our motives are not perfectly pure. We all know that we do things for the praise of people. There's a word that Jesus uses ten times in the passage we read and some of the other verses around it. Did you notice it, kids? It kept coming up again and again and again. What word is that? Father. On rare occasions, the Old Testament refers to God as Father, but no prophet taught the people to pray to God as Father. We'll look at this more, Lord willing, next week. But in the ongoing progressive revelation of the gospel, you, dear Christian, pray to God in a way that David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, nor Abraham before them prayed. Ferguson says this, if you want to summarize the difference between knowing God in the Old Testament and knowing God in the New, here it is in a nutshell. God is our Father. It's an incredible promise. Jesus is the only natural, eternal Son of God. In him, all the fullness of God dwells. By the grace of God, we are adopted as children of God, who are born not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the flesh, but of God. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who are under the law, that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has spent, sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, so you cry out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave. You're not a slave to what people think. You're a child of the living God by faith in Jesus. In Christ, you inherit the world. In Christ, you are deeply loved with the same love the Father has for his Son. In Christ, you are righteous before a holy God. God knows your name. He knew you before the world was created. And as Packer said, if you want to know what someone makes of being a Christian... Ask them this. What do they think of God as their father? The fundamental problem of the hypocrite, says Ligon Duncan, is that he doesn't know God as his heavenly father. That's how this ties in so closely. 
The hypocrite has no security. He's insecure. He tries to get praise from other people because he doesn't know the grace, the love, the mercy, the forgiveness that comes by faith in Christ and calling on God as his father. The hypocrite tries to manipulate people. This is a chief reason for Jesus' controversy with the Pharisees. They were doing what Satan did to Adam and Eve. God is stingy. God is forbidding your joy. God has forbidden you from eating all these trees. Really? God's generous. Full of mercy and grace. He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but from the other trees you may freely eat. The Pharisees hated that God would show mercy to sinners. The Pharisees were graceless. They were damned. And Jesus says they were bringing others to hell with them. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? The older son, that's what he's doing. He has no understanding of God as his father. If you struggle here, as we all can, talk to another Christian about what it means to trust in Jesus by faith, his finished work for you, and have a saving relationship with God your Father. This connects us with prayer. Because the way we live the Christian life and the way we pray are tied together. And it's tied in with what we think of God. Jesus says, okay, let's look at these disciplines. How do we pray? How does knowing God the Father impact how we pray? The Father is so generous to us, abounding in goodness. So we give to others as a joyful overflow of all that we have from God himself. We can't earn God's favor. And we give in terms of time and talent and treasure by faith, seeking to alleviate the distress of those in need. Seeking the approval of God. Do you see what Jesus says in verse 3? Here is how you should give. Not that others would see, and not that you yourself would even notice. Your left hand shouldn't know what your right hand is doing. Meaning, don't pat yourself on the back. We should not say, I am so generous. The vanity of the ego. So he's pointing to the fact that in the gospel, we have the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Not thinking about what others are saying. And not even thinking about ourselves, what we're giving, but being free to enjoy that God is our witness in whatever we do. Yes, we plan our giving. We don't close our eyes literally when we give, right? He's not saying that. There's a paradox here. Watch yourselves, do not be deceived, and forget about yourselves. Ferguson brings that out. You know what this is like when you're with a loved one. Family, friend. You're with them and you don't even think about yourself. Where did the time go? I'm so enjoying the presence of this dear loved one. 
At the same time, Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Christianity is personal, but it's not just private. Living together as the body of Christ corporately means we are salt and light in our callings. Do you see how Jesus brings these things out so wisely? We're tempted to be cowards, so Jesus says, let your light shine before others. We're tempted toward vanity. Jesus says, beware of practicing your piety before other people. What's the goal? The glory of God. How do we give? Why do we give? Are we giving because the love of God has been implanted in our hearts? What about fasting? Jesus says, fasting, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, later in this series, is our voluntary abstinence from food or drink for spiritual purposes. In the Old Testament, there was one fast appointed by God. The Day of Atonement. Other days, voluntary fasts happened. And Jesus is saying, we fast for the pleasure of our Father. See how our Father impacts how we do everything? And for the good of our own souls. As a sign of repentance. It could be mourning over personal sin. Mourning over the brokenness of the world around us. And it's a help to prayer. Fasting is not something that we do to manipulate God, but it reminds us of living before the face of God and how we pray. And that's where we're headed, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. We want to unpack the Lord's Prayer together. How does knowing God as our Father affect how we pray? which affects how we live, which affects how we worship, which affects everything about us, Emmaus Road, as a family of God. Prayer is conversation with our Father and with God the Son and with God the Holy Spirit. As an overflow of gratitude and love, it is communion with God. Fellowship with God. Enjoying God. Doing so as we cry out, Abba, Father. Because Christ took our sin on himself in our place. We who were enemies of God are now called children of God. And we call out to God by the Spirit, help me, Father. My prayers sometimes are jumbled. Spirit, help me. Present these prayers before the Father in glorious purity. God knows your weakness. He knows our fears. He knows our sins. He knows our trials and temptations. That's why Jesus speaks here of praying to your Father in secret. God knows everything. And God doesn't want to zap you. He loves you. So bring those fears before him. Bring those insecurities before him. Bring those impure motives before him. Bring those struggles and those joys and the things you are so thankful for. Bring those petitions persistently, not in a mechanical way, but because God loves you. God loves to hear your prayer. And Jesus says, God already knows something. When we pray, what does God know? 
He knows what you need before you ask. So why do we ask? Well, as Kevin DeYoung says, not to manipulate God, not to try to get something out of God by twisting his arm, but because God uses means. He uses rain to water the earth. He uses prayers to accomplish his sovereign purposes, to beautify his bride, the church, to save the nations for the sake of his name. And he uses your prayers as a part of his sovereign purpose in that. In an amazing, God-glorifying way. Our prayer life, DeYoung says, is focused on, okay, God is my father. This is who I am before him. So our prayer life should be like the iceberg in the ocean with a great mass of spirituality under the surface that nobody can see, rather than an iceberg lettuce floating in the water with all the vegetable on top and nothing under the surface. Do you see that? As we pray, we fast. As we pray, we enjoy God. As we pray, we have no secrets that we keep. And as we pray, we are truly changed to be more like Jesus. Our motives change. Isn't that remarkable? Never in this life will we do a perfectly good work with perfectly pure motives, the catechism says. We have stains. Think of the stains on our shirt from grape juice kids or popsicles that you eat during the summer. They kind of stay in there and there's stains on our Good works, they're never perfectly pure. But one thing that can help us, one pastor says, is this. Confess our impure motives. Ask God for grace to change them. And pray, God, purify my motives before I go to do this thing. Before I go to work. Before I begin my day loving my kids. Before I pray. Before I do a Bible study. Before, before, before. God, I trust in Jesus He had perfectly pure motives. He went to the cross to die for my sinful motives. And my hope is based on the gospel. My insecurities. My fears. Because who you and I are is not determined by what we think about ourselves. It's not determined by what others think about us. Who we are is determined by the reality of what God's word says of you, Christian. The remedy for our struggles is Christ. And there's a connection here with our rewards. Your father will reward you. When we pray, when we pour out what's going on in our hearts, God's not punishing you. God wants to reward you richly. What is the reward? It is all of grace. It's not of merit. It's in this life in part, in glory, in fullness. But part of the reward for you, Christian, in this life is enjoying being satisfied in the Lord, communing with God, and forgetting ourselves. We don't aim for the reward. We aim for God. 
And one part of this as we serve each other as a church is that in the serving and doing good and joy that we get in meeting the need of someone else, we get a reward in that very thing. So it's not public recognition. It's not self-congratulations. It's showing mercy and love and the joy that comes from knowing that this person is being helped. The giving of time. Listening. Serving someone in their affliction. A word that means to be hard-pressed. That their affliction might be alleviated in some way. Reminding them of Christ who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Seeing a loved one come to faith in Christ. Seeing God's people enjoy a fellowship meal when it's not raining. And all the work that goes into it. Praying, God, help my motive before. Because this is what we want to see, God's people enjoying fellowship. In the nursery, help my motive because I'm loving this family and these children as I'm helping to serve. An elderly neighbor who's shut in. Lord, I'm struggling right now. Help me to in some way serve this neighbor who's isolated and alone. Those are just some of the ways that we enjoy the Lord as we serve each other. But ultimately, the reward is where? It's eternal. Great is your reward in heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 5. It is a glory beyond all comparison. It's so precious that nothing is to be compared to it. It is seeing God as he is. It is being with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. A glorified body. No sin. No sorrow. No suffering. And ultimately it is Jesus himself. Who is that reward? The presence of God and being with the Lord. That's what we've been made for, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we now have an opportunity to enjoy the Lord, not only through word, but through the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray one day that you would say of us, by grace through faith in Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray that you would purify our motives, glorify your name, and feed us now with the bread and the cup, with Jesus himself, our true heavenly bread. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.